another episode of The Extras. My name is Candy. I'm Peter. Um, Peter, you have just preached Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to verses 20 um, at our church service. Um, and could you give us a little bit of a summary of what happened on Sunday? What was kind of the main point of the, the message? Sure thing. Okay, so on Sunday we were continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel, I Will Build My Church, and we've got to the bit where Jesus starts now to tell us a bit about his church that he's building and what life is like in the church. And he says that life in the church is a place where every believer needs to be concerned for the care of every other believer, lest one wander away and perish. It's not the Father's will that any little one of his ought to perish, and so we have to share the Father's heart in caring for one another. And Jesus describes a bit about what that might look like, particularly if we should see a fellow believer wandering off into sin. Mm, Thank you, Peter. I found it personally really helpful and also really challenging to think about the Father's heart for the little ones Mm. and the heart that we should share, which means we should confront others when we see them wandering away and vice versa, be open to being confronted when others talk to us about the ways that we are wandering. So it was personally very challenging. So thank you, Peter. There was lots of connect cards. I'm showing a lot of appreciation. So thank you for bringing God's word to us. In the extras, we tackle the questions that you send through on a Sunday um, via the text line or in the connect cards. We've got oodles of questions this week as befitting a passage that has quite a lot of implication mm-hmm. um, on how we think about our vert- our horizontal relationship with one another as brothers and sisters. A quick question, Peter. Someone wanted to know if you were wearing any socks. I don't know if you just look like... I See, at the moment, I'm looking at Peter's shoes and it looks like he may not have been wearing socks. But folks, if you look from the side angle and not the front angle, you can see there are socks. I think they're called like anklets or something. They don't know. Anklets are like those... Anklets are little bracelets. Oh, little ankle, bracelets. Isn't it? Okay. Yeah. No, English please... is my second language. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> please to report, listeners, the little behind the scenes look. Uh, tiny little invisible socks. You don't need to worry about the smells I'm making in my shoes. Socks are present. Yeah, socks are present. And someone else wanted to know, Peter, you talked about using an electronic an electron microscope that cost $50,000. For um, those who were in Afternoon Church and North Rocks, uh, Peter used this sermon illustration to talk about Jesus not leaving us alone to just do our own thing, like how you were left alone with a $50,000 electron microscope that you could have broken so this person wants to know did you actually break that microscope did you get it too close to the sample uh i'll never tell if it was broken no one can ever prove it was me (laughs) it shall remain a mystery unless maybe the lecturer is listening right now we don't know um i didn't break it it didn't break it (laughs) did you get close enough to the sample no worthless data Look, at least you didn't break it, you know, $50,000. We're going to dig right into the passage. There are a few questions about the angel, Jesus talking about the angels. So he says this in verse 10. He says, I tell you that their angels, the little ones, angels in heaven, always see the face of my father in heaven. So the question is, first of all, are they guardian angels for everyone, Peter? Is this what Jesus is saying? And why did Jesus bring angels into this at all? Yeah, it's a good question. Um... So we touched on this lightly in the in the in the talk. I think we see this, and uh, this verse has sort of generated this later doctrine of guardian angels, which has grown up. And really, this is the biblical basis uh, for that idea. 
However, um, I would say uh, we, reading it backwards, think, oh, that sounds a lot like Guardian Angels. But if you had never, uh, you wouldn't, you don't necessarily need to read this verse that way. Uh, it just says that um, the little ones have angels. It doesn't say that the little ones only have angels. It doesn't say that the little ones have specific angels, each one angel for each <laughs> One angel for one. each one. It actually doesn't say any of that. It just says that there are angels who are connected in some way to these little ones. Now, I wonder if all that's being said is what we read elsewhere in the Bible. We don't really have much of a sense elsewhere in the Bible that there's one angel assigned to each person. Some people read this out of Acts chapter 12. Again, it's not really clear that that's what that chapter is saying. There are some bits in the Old Testament where it seems like an angel belongs to individual nations, but again, that's still not quite individuals, people having guardian angels. I wonder if what this verse is saying is really what Hebrews chapter 1 says quite clearly. Um, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So this is Hebrews chapter 1, verses... Verse 14. Okay. Yeah, which is really just saying that God's angels, his servants, are there to serve those who will be saved, the little ones. And so uh, these little ones, uh, whatever Christian, whatever little one you're interacting with... uh, God is determined that they are saved and he directs his angelic forces to serve them to that end. Mm. Um, So that's the broad point that's being made. Now, why bring up angels at all, somebody asks? Well, in a sense, um, ask Jesus when you meet him. (laughs) But I wonder if in the context, you know, we've just been talking about uh, what would happen if you caused one of these little ones to stumble. Verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, why would it be better to go straight to the bottom of the ocean and drown? Well, presumably because the Father cares about these little ones and the Father will avenge them. The Father is on their side and he will avenge them. And that helps, I think, to make sense of why the angels are brought up. Because uh, a couple of chapters back, Jesus talks about, uh, in verse 16, that the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, Mm. and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So stringing that together, if the angels will come at the judgment, and the angels are watching over the little ones, and you cause a little one to stumble, well... If you're going to meet the angels of the Son and the Father who cares for those angels and you've caused one of them to stumble, you'd be better off drowning than facing that act of judgment. So I wonder if the angels are brought up here because they are the ones who execute the Father's concern for the little ones at the judgment. Yeah. So it would be quite quite just reinforcing the, the force of needing to care for the little ones. Um, Talking about the little ones, this person um, has texted in a question saying, Jesus obviously brought a literal child in front of him as a live example when he says the little ones, but he's not just talking about literal children because he ends up talking about God's people. So is it little children or is it God's people? Is it both? Is it little children that are God's people? What are we talking about here? Yeah, it's helpful to have the clarifying question because it's a bit of everything, really. We start with a literal little child in chapter 18. So chapter 18, verse 2, Jesus called a little child to him. So he's got a real little person Mm -hmm. there. And 
then this little person, this actual little person, becomes a point of comparison for the adult disciples. Uh, Verse 3, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So they don't have to become children. It's hard to know how you would do that as an adult. Uh, But you need to become like a child in some respects. Jesus then takes another step further as he goes on to verse 6. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, and then he explains that these little ones are those who believe in me. So the little one goes from being an actual little child to a point of comparison to a kind of way of describing every believer, child or adult. Every child of God is a little one, whether we are children or or adults. So mm. little ones becomes the way that Jesus, or one of the ways that Jesus in this dis- passage describes every disciple, child or adult. Yeah, and I think that's very clear as well in verse 3 because Jesus says, unless you change it, become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So we all have to be like little children, hence the little children referencing mm. all believers, which has the example from the child. Um, Coming down to the passage uh, that you preached about on preached on sorry on Sunday, it starts off with Jesus telling us not to despise the little ones, and then it uh, it talks about the sheep that are wandering away. This person has a question about the wandering sheep. Is the wandering sheep a person who is not a Christian, or is a wandering sheep someone who is a Christian? So which one is it? Could it mean that God is happier about a new follower than the ones who are already made Christian? Or is it just that God doesn't want to lose a believer? Yeah, I don't think the idea here is about uh, new followers. Mm. I think it's talking about... The, Jesus actually tells us what the point of the parable is. Very helpful. Uh, chapter 18, verse 14. In the same way as this guy with the sheep, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So that's the punchline. The father doesn't want any believer, any little one, to perish, to wander off the path, to fall away from life, to uh, be thrown into the fire of hell, as he's just been talking. That's not what the father wants. And he illustrates that point with the story about the the sheep. Now, I don't think we actually need to tightly connect every single detail of this parable to uh, some um, situation in the church. Jesus doesn't do that. He gets closer to that with other parables, but he doesn't seem to be doing that here. I think the point is the general one, that as a man with sheep is concerned about uh, each individual one uh, to the point where uh, it's worth uh, effort to restore that little one. So the father is concerned for each of his little ones and is willing to expend effort that not one of them is lost. Mm. Yeah. Talking about the word church, because Jesus talks about the need if a brother or sister sin to go and point out their fault. And then it says, if they will not listen, take one or two along. And then after that, it says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. This person's question is, what does the word church mean in the New Testament context? Is it like a Jewish gathering of that time or group of disciples or something else? Yeah, I think these words here are uh, looking forward to the gathering, to local gatherings of God's people um, after the resurrection. So looking forward Mm. to that. Uh, So 
uh, not you know not talking about a kind of a, the word church like we spoke about a few weeks ago it just means a gathering of people yeah. so it's not talking about a, a formal institutional thing just talking about when God's people have come together yeah and on that talking about church we have a question really about applying the sermon what might be some examples of bringing sin before the church so in particular this person wants to know to what extent does sin have to get to a point of what point does it have to get to before you have to tell it to the church? Is it a sin against the church? Is that how it works or against the person? Is it abuse? Is it personal sin like alcoholism? What, what is the line here? Yeah, uh, I think it's helpful for us to think about, you know, what might this sort of look like in practice? So uh, as we spoke about it on Sunday, um, I uh, tried to... Uh, try to say and try to explain that I, th- I think Jesus is not so much selling a, uh, setting out a, a policy or a procedure yeah. here that is to be followed. Like a, a, like a formulaic HR policy that you go step one, step two, step three. Yeah, that's right. Um, now, an organisation, uh, a, a church like ours, needs a, a discipline policy and it is appropriate that ours be modelled on this, closely modelled on it. But I don't think it's necessary that it uh, this be precisely our discipline policy. And part of the reason I think of that is that other instances in the Bible where you see uh, what we would call church discipline being enacted, places like 1 Corinthians 5, what they uh, the early Christians are doing recognisably matches quite closely to this, but it's never exactly the same thing. And so I don't think our uh, church, as we are trying to address sin for the sake of the wanderer and restoring that wanderer, uh, I think we need to be deeply informed by what's going on here. But I don't think actually there's a a, a policy or a procedure as such spelled out here for us to follow. So if we think about sort of the final stages of the process, we focused mostly on the the first stages of the process where... uh, Individually, you know, we kind of notice that a brother or a sister is, is wandering. We can approach them. We, we try to convict them of their sin, to convince them what they're doing is wrong and to, to win them back so that they're not lost. Um, that's how this process kind of starts. And should that not work, we don't sort of wash our hands of it, but we say, well, I'd better get a couple of others along. We sort of bring a few others and, and again, attempt to convince them and mm. try to help them to listen. And it sounds like, well, this was an example you used in Night Church, but you talked about if someone's sort of steamrolling others in growth group, it might be appropriate to get the two or three others or whoever they are from that growth group, you know, to go and talk to them. So I guess in terms of the context of church, what is the appropriate kind of church? It seems like that would be something that changes depending on the setting of what we're talking about. Would it? I think yeah. that's I think that's right. I think that that's wise. Uh now, sometimes, you know, sin might be uh, something that's primarily uh, affecting, like you say, a, a growth group and the, the dynamics in that. And uh, we may think, well, it's, uh, this is best addressed in that context that we uh, speak to this little kind of gathering within the gathering of the growth group for the sake of reproving, uh, correcting, bringing back the the wanderer. Mm. There might be other instances uh, of various kinds, but uh, it might be the case that, uh, say, somebody at 
church uh, at the, the the gathering on a Sunday. Uh, let's say um, it's a man who uh, the, he 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 approaches. Um, uh, women, particularly younger women, he likes to get into conversations with them one on one. He makes them feel very uncomfortable, uh, and sometimes he says things that that seem to be, uh, if not inappropriate, pretty close to it. And uh, somebody goes to speak to him about it. He doesn't listen. He keeps going. A couple of men go and speak to him about it. He doesn't listen. He keeps going. Um, at that stage, it might be uh, appropriate that the, uh, the, the, say, those people speak to the pastor. So this is actually an issue for everybody in church. We've spoken to him individually. We've spoken to him together. Uh, what can we do? He won't listen to us. Say, now we're at the level of the whole church. The pastor is responsible for the whole church. Perhaps he approaches this man and says, brother, you need to stop doing what you're doing. If you can't stop you won't be welcome in our gatherings anymore for the sake of those whom you are at risk of damaging here, but also for your own sake to communicate to you that this behavior isn't appropriate. You must turn away from it. You have to stop. Say that this man won't listen to the pastor. It may then be appropriate that the pastor stands up and says, uh, you know, in, a, in the context of a church gathering, uh, look, I am sorry to tell you this, uh, but I have asked uh, this man not to attend our church gatherings because of his behaviour. He's welcome. Uh, I've communicated to him he's welcome to return if he repents and seeks forgiveness. So far, he's unwilling to do that. But uh, should he repent, should he seek forgiveness, uh, he is welcome to return to us. And I urge you all to pray that that be the case. I think that's one example of what this could look like uh, in this sense of tell it to the whole church. What? Um, so at that point, I just want to probe in a little bit here, Peter. You're talking about saying, telling someone that they shouldn't come back. Um, how does that work with the person being... I mean, this kind of goes into uh, a bit of... We, we've got some questions about the tax collectors and the sinners, but I think I want to kind of probe into that now mm. to say, well... Jesus welcomed the tax collectors and the sinners. Would it be that maybe this person who is unrepentant? I mean, are they are they Christian at that point? Um, if if you you know say the pastor speaks to that person and they're like, no, I don't think there's anything wrong with what I'm doing. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing despite every people you know people having confronted me about it and told me that I've sinned against them and sinned. Um, would we say you're not actually a Christian at this point if you're living unrepentantly? And as a tax collector and a sinner, we kind of let them come to the public gathering but do not treat them as a brother? Or, or are you sort of saying there's a safety question here that it's unsafe for this person because of their impact on others around them? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a kind of a few different pieces there. Uh, we did get quite a lot of questions about the tax collector and the sinner. What's going on here? Yeah. Um, that doesn't sound very loving. Isn't this passage supposed to be about loving people? So uh, I think the, the image here is that at the after persistent efforts to call somebody to repentance, the final stage is to make clear to somebody that they 
now are effectively an outsider as far as the community is concerned. Mm. They're not one of us anymore. Yeah. Because the gathering of Jesus' disciples is the gathering of those who hear his voice, those who turn away from sin. None of us perfectly, uh, but all of us. That's the posture we need to take, that if sin is pointed out to us, we repent of it. We seek God's forgiveness. And if there's somebody in our midst who claims the name of a follower of Jesus but refuses to turn away from sin, we have to say that's not what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. You're not behaving like one of us. You're behaving like an outsider and like a pagan or tax collector. Jesus is using the language of his day to explain uh, the kind of person you would regard as an outsider, someone who is not a part of us, who is one of them. And so we make it clear to that person, you're not one of us. You're actually living like one of them. Now, that sounds awful, doesn't it? It sounds like very harsh, very judgmental. But the goal here is to win that person, to take that final step of saying, you're actually not one of us, you're one of them, to communicate very clearly to them, this is not how a Christian behaves. You're actually acting like someone who's outside the kingdom of God. So severe is your behavior and the threat to you Uh, the way you are living threatens to leave you eternally outside the kingdom of God. Stop, repent, turn around, come back. Mm. And this is a loving thing. You know, in our culture, uh, affirmation is loving, welcoming is loving. And Jesus says, well, actually, there comes a point at which telling someone that they're in sin and calling them to repentance, that is what's loving to do. Yeah, because at the end of the day, when we all stand before the judgment throne, that's not going to matter how much we affirm someone if God does not affirm them. And where the church has the role of, um, in here, Jesus is saying, treating them as tax collectors and pagans, um, is, is, is saying this is actually in reality. If someone's not repentant, they're not a Christian because the very definition of becoming a Christian is to take up your cross to deny yourself to follow Jesus. Um, it is about turning back to to God and, and living with him as your Lord. And so this person's not doing that, which means they're not a Christian. And so to, to say to them, welcome them as a Christian is actually to lie to them about where they stand. And to leave them in grave danger. Yeah, to leave them kind of complacent or, or thinking, yeah, like, well, everybody around me think that this is okay and I'm still a Christian when, when that's actually a lie. And so it's better to tell the truth. But then I guess my question is coming to the point of, because you were talking about getting up in the public gathering and saying this person's not welcomed here. Like if we welcome non-Christians into our church, how does that work? Yeah, I think that's really helpful. So we might, so we've kind of talked a bit about what does it mean to treat somebody as a tax collector or a pagan, making clear to them that they're not one of us, Mm. they are an outsider, their behavior is showing that they're an outsider and they need to repent. Um, As you pointed out really helpfully, Candy, Jesus' attitude to the the pagan and to the tax collector is actually to call them into the kingdom of God, Uh, not to sort of pretend that they are within the kingdom of God. They need to turn away from their sin, but they're welcome to do that and to come in. And so uh, we've got a few questions. Should we really be shunning people? Should we be saying we have nothing to do with them? Should we be excluding them? No, we shouldn't, Mm. because that's not how we treat pagans and tax collectors. So we don't lie to them and say, oh, you're fine with Jesus. But we do say, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Turn away from your sin. Put your trust in him. Come in. 
If you're an outsider, come in. Jesus welcomes you in. He bids you come, repent of your sins, receive forgiveness and receive eternal life. Come into his church. And so that is our stance towards the brother or the sister who has wandered out of our fellowship, who's a danger of wandering out of the kingdom of God, saying, you know, you need to turn around and come back. We're not Mm -hmm. saying get lost, we want nothing else to do with you. We're saying you're an outsider who needs to come inside. Yeah. Now, in our sort of church discipline policy, I was talking about we might say this person is no longer welcome at our gatherings. I think that's one way that that could go, uh, particularly if we said you know there's a there's a risk. Um, so uh, we might think of say the uh, the abuser, the unrepentant abuser. We might say this person uh, is uh, in sin. This person is no longer welcome at our gatherings. Uh, they are called by the Lord Jesus to repent and seek forgiveness. Uh, but until such time as this person does that, they cannot be a part of our gatherings. And I guess this is kind of um, bordering into into things like um, sexual assault, mm. um, things like, yeah, the, the criminal criminal offences, se- sexual criminal offences and things like that, or domestic violence, thinking through all, all the implications for the safety of our members. Um, but I could think even of when you talk about gathering, like I think maybe not so much, I mean, public gathering, we need to think about the safety of, of those in there. I think that's a separate question though but on the question of treating someone as a non-believer like if they're a growth group leader and they go well I'm going to keep coming to the growth group training and be a growth group leader or we say no sorry like we don't invite people who don't trust in Jesus to serve him that's that's not because you are not serving Jesus by the way you live Mm. um or you know if they're on music or whatever it is that in terms of them wanting to get into serving role that's definitely a context for that type of gathering when we would exclude them and that's a conversation that needs to happen um because we don't we don't ask non-christians to serve in those roles because as a part of why we ask people to serve is that they have a relationship with jesus mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it's certainly possible to imagine uh people who are kind of in this situation who have wandered off into sin and are unrepentant, who have been warned repeatedly and and won't listen, it's certainly possible to imagine those people continuing to be welcome at our gatherings. If their behaviour doesn't involve uh, a a sort of a risk to others, Mm. uh, we might might tell them, uh, look, your behaviour is is showing that you are an outsider, not an insider. Outsiders are very welcome to attend church on Sunday, and we hope that you do. You're not going to be able to serve, and you're not going to be able to receive the Lord's Supper, Mm. because receiving the Lord's Supper is a one way that we come in repentance and faith. Now, if you want to repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus, then please do take the Lord's Supper. But that's what it's going to take for you to come and share in the Lord's Supper with us. Mm. And you know, perhaps depending on what the sin uh, was, uh, we might announce that publicly. I think, say, if one of our pastors, yeah. uh, if one of our pastors um, left their husband or wife and kept coming along to church like nothing had happened, wouldn't listen to what was going on, uh, we'd say perhaps there's not a safety risk here. Uh, they're not to be barred from the gathering but we would actually probably it would be appropriate that Raj make it clear to everybody uh, that this person is not to be followed 
in this behaviour, mm. uh, that they're actually living like someone who is an outsider uh, and everybody in the church needs to be warned. This isn't okay. This is the kind of behaviour that's putting this person and anyone who follows them at risk of God's eternal yeah. judgment. Especially if they're, I guess, trying to gather a gathering around them and lead them. Um, yeah, I think of 1 Timothy 5, you know, in verses 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So you've definitely got that instruction there. Um, Peter, just one last question in particular on the passage. In verse 18, this person said they don't understand whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. What is What does that mean? What's been permitted? Yeah, it's a good question, and thank you to whoever asked it. So the... Uh, I think the issue here is that uh, this person is looking at a, at a different translation, and I'm sorry I didn't go investigate to find out which one it was. So our NIV, the, the translation mm-hmm. that we use at church, uh, reads, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, that's a pretty good reflection of the original Greek uh, in which this, uh, the, which Matthew wrote. It sounds a lot like what what Jesus says to Peter as well in chapter 16. Yes, yeah, so yeah, very close. So there it's to Peter and now it's to kind of uh, you, um, mm. the church. Yeah. Now, this kind of loosing and binding, that's sort of, um, that's a figure of speech, isn't it? Jesus isn't talking about kind of literally tying up knots or literally untying knots. <laughs> um, it's a figure of speech. Yeah. Now, what is he trying to get at? I think one thing he's trying to get at is uh, permitting or not permitting, um, which is how the translation that our questioner uh, is using um, has uh, chosen to interpret that figurative language. However, I do think that Jesus could have just said that if that's all he meant. I think Jesus has used this figurative language of binding and loosing um, because it can have a little bit of a, a broader application than that. So it's not only talking about deciding that certain behavior is okay or deciding that certain behavior isn't okay. I think it's also got to do with um, deciding who's inside and who's mm. outside, which yeah. is really more uh, what he's getting at in chapter 16, where it's talking about people coming into the kingdom or, or uh, remaining outside the kingdom based on their response to the word that's being preached. I think this is really about people uh, remaining within the kingdom or being outside the kingdom based on their response to um, this kind of word of the church, Mm. um, repent and put your trust in Jesus, turn away from sin. So binding and loosing, I think it's hard to pin down exactly what it means. And I think Jesus has deliberately chosen language that is a bit flexible, that could be about permitting or not permitting certain behaviours, but could also be about uh, including or excluding certain people. I think he intends both of those things. Uh, So the language relates to the kind of process and the kind of community care that's on view in the rest of the passage. Yeah, because you've got also just on that about who's in and out, like verse 17, right? Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Then he says, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Mm. That there is a sense where we were, were saying, if you're being told, like, by the church, you're not behaving as a Christian, you're not repentant. It's not just empty words. It's, it's actually a community of people who trust in Jesus 
Um, obviously, that has to be checked by the word of God. I mean, your community, but you know that means something. I think. Um, yeah, and it, it means something um, because of, as Jesus goes on, you know, as they are praying about this, they can be assured that they will wind up on God's page. Mm. Um, that they will do on earth as it is has already been done in heaven. Uh, there's a didn't get time to talk about this on Sunday. There's a footnote and uh, in verse 18, and we should follow it. Will have been. So it's not uh, probably whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, mm. but will have been bound in heaven. Yeah. It's the idea that God will have decided, and you'll be able to follow his decision in the decision that you make. Yeah. Uh, if you, I think the subtext is depending on him in prayer. Mm. That's very helpful. Uh, thinking about we've we've got a question here about talking about someone who's not a Christian. How do you go about reacting to someone who's not a Christian sinning, even after pointing it out to them? So I guess this is not really the context of what our passage is talking about. We've talked about the fact that the sheep is talking about a, a believer, one of the little ones um, who's wandered. We're not talking about the non-Christian here. But if someone who's not a Christian keeps sinning, how do you react to them after you've kind of pointed it out already? Yeah, so Jesus is talking about life in the church here, isn't he? Yeah. So that's not really what he's addressing. Um, I suppose at the at the the really the most important thing is that as with any non-Christian person, any person who doesn't believe in Jesus yet, you want to say your behaviour is sin against God and uh, against people created in God's image, and you need to repent of it. You need to come to Jesus and seek forgiveness. That's the message that all of our friends who aren't yet Christians need to hear. Uh, now. Um, we are all in, you know, all kinds of relationships, I guess, with people who are not Christians, and we may have um, objections to their behaviour, the way they are treating us. We won't be able to address those on a Christian level. We won't be able to say, hey, what you're doing doesn't please our Father in heaven. Mm, there's no common authority. That's not a shared frame of reference. Uh, but, you know, of course, uh, we can engage in all kinds of sort of conflict resolution with people who are, uh, what we would say, sinning, uh, who are doing the wrong thing. Uh, we can't engage with them on that level as fellow Christians, but as uh, fellow people, of course, we can um, use kind of wise conflict resolution techniques to talk about what they're doing, how it makes us feel, and to ask them, you know, can they please do something different? Mm. Uh this person said, if a Christian hurt and insult me, that's okay. But wanting to ask, how should I react when a fellow Christian hurt and insult God? Some may do it unintentionally. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it okay if a Christian hurt and insult you? <laughs> me? Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think it's not really right. Mm. Um, we just, we've just been told if a Christian sins, like if a brother or sister sins and that, that is a sin, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So we don't, we don't actually, if our concern is not about me and I feel fine about it, so it's, that's fine. The concern is actually for the brother or sister. You know, if they're sinning, that's dangerous for them. Uh, they're wandering from the path and they actually need our help to say, brother, sister, you need to honour Jesus. And, and when you do this thing, that's not honouring Jesus. So I think I'd say, don't be so quick to say, oh, it's fine if they're singing against me. I don't really mind. Um, God minds and mm. they need help. Um, if someone's sinning against God, I would say that every sin against a person is to sin against God because you know, God loves his little ones and God loves every you know, human being made in his image. Uh, 
of course, yes, yeah, some people may uh, be sinning unintentionally and in all kinds of ways, and, and we're all embroiled in sin of, of various kinds. Um, and that it actually may be a very helpful thing to say, hey, do you know that um, when you speak loosely in this way or uh, when you treat others in this way, um, that's, a, that's offensive to God? Mm. Um, we may benefit from having that pointed out to us. Thank you, Peter. Uh, we've got a question here about, um, I'm, I'm going to read the scenario because I think this person could say for, for the podcast, if someone much older than me and who is supposedly more mature in their faith made an offensive and inappropriate sexual joke about me and another person at a non-church event, but they felt really bad about it afterwards and probably apologized to me. And I think I've forgiven them. Is it holding a sinful grudge if I don't want anything to do with them afterwards and that my respect for them has completely gone? Mm. Yeah, it sounds uh, just like a painful um, episode. Mm. Uh, what do you, how do you react to this, Candy? I think I empathize with um, losing respect for someone. Uh, Peter, you and I were talking about this a bit earlier on, and I think um, when we... When we when we trust and respect someone, you know, and they, they do go and do something we feel is so out of character of what we expect on them, we get very disappointed. Um, our estimation of them, our respect and esteem for them gets a bit crushed. And it sounds like from, I mean, if I sort of read between the lines, it sounds like it's kind of plummeted to nothing for this possible person who's heard this very harmful, uh, hurtful um, joke. I, I do want to say though, if this person afterwards probably apologized to you, I, I do want to say that, I, I, and and you're saying that um, you don't want anything to do with them afterwards. I guess maybe possibly the thing you could potentially be wrestling with is the hurt you feel. Um, and what does that mean to forgive someone, I guess is the question. And I think being forgiving someone the way that God forgives us is to bear the cost of our sin um, and our offense against him. And in some sense, you have to bear the cost of that now. You've had that joke made about you. It was very hurtful. And you're bearing the cost of that as you forgive that person and being open to reconciliation with them, especially, I guess, if they have apologized to you about it, um, which is the pretext for why you've forgiven them. I mean, maybe you feel like you haven't really quite made closure, um, that you still want to talk to them about how this has impacted you. Maybe you feel they don't understand it. I don't know exactly what happened in the apology. I mean, was it just like, look, I'm sorry I said that, or could you really have a decent conversation about it where you felt like they understood what happened? Um, but I think, yeah, if if you're saying you don't want anything more to do with them, I would say that that's probably not being very open to having a relationship with this person. And I would question whether or not you have forgiven them if that's how you, um, yeah, if that's kind of where you're going, um, is that you don't want anything more to do with them. But then at the same time, you go, my respect for them has completely gone. I think that's understandable. Respect and trust takes time to build. And so it may be that you're open to chatting with them, but let them take the step of earning your trust again. Um, after that's happened. I mean, I don't think you're called to pretend nothing's happened, but I think you are called to be open-minded, open-hearted and open-handed with someone if you have forgiven them. To give them a second chance in a way. Yeah, to be a friend again. What do you think, Peter? I've said a lot. 
Yeah, that sounds really wise to me. I think you're right that sin does have consequences. And so as a consequence, you know, you uh, think differently about this person now and uh, you may be unwilling to invite them to speak into your life in certain ways you know if they've sort of demonstrated um, this uh, misjudgment or this heart attitude uh, that is uh, is a, a sinful and a harmful one but I think I think you're right Candy I think uh, forgiveness means being uh, being open to the resumption of a relationship and there are all kinds of relation, uh, of, of all kinds of reasons that that might not be a full reconciliation. Um, most obviously, if the uh, if the if the one who has wronged you doesn't repent of it, uh, or if the one who has wronged you um, poses some ongoing uh, risk or threat to your safety, obviously reconciliation uh, is going to be really limited in those mm. cases. And I also want to put, I think in the case of domestic violence, right, it's always with the cycle of violence is they seem repentant mm. until it happens again. And mm. so you, you feel like you should forgive them. But then when you forgive them, they do the same thing again and again and again and again. You sort of ask yourself, I'm called to forgive, you know, um, was that seven times 70 or something, you know, lots of times. But it's getting to a point where it's obvious from their action, they're not actually repentant. And this is just another way of getting what they want. Um, anyway, I'm just putting that in there. It's like, yeah, with these things, it can be complicated. It can be complicated um, in terms of it's not just a linear, just someone say sorry, they're repentant and that's it. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful, I think. And that's another case in which uh, forgiving somebody uh, may not actually lead on to a full reconciliation. It might be appropriate to say, look, our relationship can't continue in anything like the shape that it was in previously. However, I guess I want to say in this case, that doesn't sound like what's going on to me. It does sound like this person has genuinely repented. Uh, It doesn't sound like this person is going to cause uh, an ongoing uh, harm or or risk to you. Uh, So I would encourage that uh, I think forgiveness here uh, should lead to an openness to a resumption of relationship, to reconciliation in that sense of still having things to do with that person, not uh, cutting them off and saying, well, they're dead to me now because of what they did. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But saying, actually... You know, as as a, a sinner forgiven much uh, and reconciled with God by the blood of Jesus, uh, I'm going to forgive this person and I'm going to attempt reconciliation with them. Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's too much as well, but personally, if I find that hard, I might actually, maybe it's just my personality, but I would go up to the person and say, look, I'm finding this quite hard. Um you know, I know that they've, yeah, and I guess it depends on how the apology's gone. Maybe it's just on you to, to, to be open-hearted about that. But yeah, I tend to go for the policy of transparency, but I don't know how, how often that works out. But you know, yeah, if they're if they're apologetic about it, it's it's good for them to, yeah. If you're finding that hard, maybe you can just have a chat. Don't know. That's just the way that I think about it. Um, thinking about, I think last question. Yes. Um, so it talks about Matthew. In, in Matthew so far, we've talked about um, needing to be restoring kind of people to fellowship, doing that sensitively. Uh, what are some practical ways of 
doing that and this person's kind of in particular used the plank in our own eyes you know so Jesus talks about before we take the speck out of someone's eye we got to remove the plank in our own eyes so what are the practical ways of not correcting a brother or sister without taking that plank out of our own eye yeah, it's a really helpful comment because uh, also in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus does talk about that, that uh, we're not uh, we're not to uh, step first to try to correct someone else's behavior, but actually um, be to recognize that uh, we're responsible for our own sin and, and for trying to redress that in our own lives. So I would say that's, uh, that's really important and particularly should... Um, affect the way that we go about you know practically uh, reproving others i would say that wherever possible you know if it is the case um confess your own weakness so if if you're going to um if you're going to try to encourage uh you know a brother or a sister Mm. that um they they, they really need to take action to get on top of their pornography habit. They have to. It doesn't please God. Um, it doesn't honor people made in God's image. It corrupts uh, them and damages them. It's bad news all round. If you're going to take that step, um, if it's the case for you, then say, brother, sister, this has been a part of my life. This is something mm-hmm. that I've struggled with too. This is something I still struggle with now, to be honest. Uh, but I'm just am convinced that this isn't pleasing to God. And so I think wherever possible, acknowledging our own weakness and and fallibility, not getting up on the high horse, um, but wherever we can saying, look, as one sinner to another, let me encourage you, um, seek the Lord, turn away from sin. Mm, Yeah. I think another thing I'd also encourage is just to listen well. Um, Sometimes... uh, uh, we don't see everything about a person's life none of us do really only God and probably that person does Um, and we might not understand it might look like something to us and we might jump to a conclusion oh like this this person must be doing that because they're greedy or because they're selfish Mm. um, or they're doing that because they're just a bit proud Um, but we don't actually sometimes we don't know if, if that's the case or not and so it's good to ask questions and to understand where they're coming from and not just jump to conclusions too quickly. Um, yeah, I think I think that's that's quite helpful. Uh, we're told that love believes all things. Um, are we believing the best about the other person or do we kind of come always from the approach of, nah, like they're, they're just the worst. And so, <laughs> so like if they do this, this must mean this about them um, without actually asking the question or understanding the situation or, yeah. So I think listening is also very helpful towards taking the plank out of our own eyes because that plank could very well be just our own assumptions or self-righteousness um, or pride. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think I'd also just urge us to say that we oughtn't to let, you know, we oughtn't to play these words of Jesus off against one another. Mm. Um, so, in particular, we oughtn't to say, oh, well, you know, I have sinned and so I'm in no position to ever, you know, say anything to anybody else. In a way, that's actually um, trying to let ourselves off the hook for the kind of care that Jesus is describing here. Now, Jesus knows that we all are sinful and uh, we can assume that Jesus didn't intend uh, one of his words to nullify another, you know, that we would never go and approach a brother or sister to warn them and win them back uh, because we know that, you know, we have sin in our lives. So I guess I would caution us. I think our default is to uh, do whatever we can to avoid having that conversation to reprove and win back the wanderer. And I would say, don't, 
make Jesus' words about the speck and the plank your excuse uh, for not obeying his word here. Peter, could I pose something to you, which is not written, but I thought I do want to pose it, um, even though we're, we're kind of running short on time. What if you have done it before, you have sought to listen, you have sought to take the plank out of your own eye, but the person's blown you off before, and or you've had experience where you've been felt very burnt by it, maybe, you know, because I guess sometimes when you confront someone about something, the thing they say to you might be very hurtful. Maybe they would say to you, you've got a plank in your own eye, or they might say to you, it's because you're self-righteous that you think these things about me. You don't know anything. Or like, I don't even want to be your friend anymore. How could you say something like that to me? So I can imagine, right? Like, I mean, even for me personally, I can still remember the ways that like someone had said something to me that really hurt me when I try to approach that person about something. And like, how do you deal with the fact that if you're kind of coming at this with scars of what's happened in the past, how do you kind of continue on? Mm. What would be kind of a good, your word of encouragement? (laughs) Just throwing this to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think saying that, saying that situation, you approach somebody and they just, they're, uh, or they cut you off even, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. They, they just respond in a way that's, wow, way, way worse than anything you thought might happen and it really wounds you. Um, I actually think that what Jesus describes here is really, really helpful because, you know, he says, if they won't listen, take one or two others along. Uh, and he kind of frames it with, you know, with re- uh, referencing this kind of Old Testament legal, legal principle about testimony in court, you know, established matters by two or three. But um, Jesus is kind of appealing to this broader sense of um, it's, you know, in a he said, she said situation, one against another, all kinds of things can go wrong. Call others in. And I think what's behind this is just that the church is God's gift to the church. And we're not left to do this stuff alone. And say things blow up between two of us. Jesus says, go get another one or two. Mm. And I think that this unfolding process of bringing more people in uh, is supposed to help uh, throw light on that situation where two or three come in, they can say to one, look, I'm afraid you really did have the wrong end of the stick here. You're turning a matter of personal preference into you know, a matter of principle. That's not sin. That's just a matter of legitimate difference. Or those one or two might come in and say, wow, uh, you are dead right. And and that is really dangerous, the way they're acting. And the way that they responded to you is absolutely not okay. We've got your back in this and we want to help you to uh, talk to this person and to get past this impasse that we're at. I actually think this picture of more people getting involved is a really beautiful picture of um, the church uh, helping individuals over the, uh, the, 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 the impasses that we reach mm-hmm. sometimes in one-on-one relationships. And if we're all invested in one another, where something breaks down between two of us, uh, one or two more can come and can help. And if necessary, the whole church is, is there ready to try to help this, this broken mess get back onto a better footing. Mm. So I would say that what Jesus describes is God's gift and then when we get stuck with each other, actually we don't need to stay stuck, but there's, there's help there on earth as well as in heaven as we pray. Thank you, Peter. So uh, for those of us who are regular listeners, we usually end with just letting you know what's happening this coming Sunday. Uh, So we're going to be finishing up Matthew with chapter 18, verses 21 to the end of the chapter in verses 35. Um, So 
read ahead and we look forward to getting more of your questions this coming Sunday. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.